Good evening, good evening. Thank you for tuning in for another Elm City Lit Fest podcast. Um, it's just me today. Miss Ife is taking a break tonight. We still have Emily um, taking care of our social media marketing. Um, I'm Sean McAllister, one of the co-coordinators here for the Elm City Lit Fest. And tonight we have the good brother Don C. Sawyer. How you doing? Hey, Don. So Don is the Vice President for Equity and Inclusion, the Chief Diversity Officer at Quinnipiac University in Hamden, Connecticut. He is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Sociology in the College of Arts and Sciences and an assistant clinical professor in the Frank H. Netter MD School of Medicine. He teaches courses on race, education, popular culture, social research methods, including the university's first course dedicated to sociological study of hip hop culture. His scholarly focus is on race, social justice, urban education, hip hop culture, and formerly incarcerated citizens re-entry experiences. He earned his PhD and master's in sociology and his MS in cultural foundations of education from Syracuse University and has a BA in psychology from Hartwick College. I just feel so honored reading all of that. Like, oh, <laughs> I, I, I hate bios. <laughs> it does, you know, they make you like, mm, am I really doing all that? But you are, right? And you deserve your flowers in that. I was honored to meet you and work with you with Hamden. They put together their first um, Black film miniseries. You were one of our speakers. And tonight we're here to talk about hip hop and how it relates to education and also taking a look at the school to prison pipeline. Um, Don was a part of this wonderful book here. If you haven't got it, definitely go cop it. He was one of the co-authors for Hip Hop and Dismantling the School to Prison Pipeline. This is definitely a read. It's not too long, but I promise you, it's not going to take you a week. If you're reading it right, you should have a notebook full of notes, as I do here. (laughs) So, Don, tell us a little bit about the book, how it got started, and that whole process of getting it together. So, I mean, the book has been, uh, man, in the works for a while. Um, And so the the people that you have on there, Daniel, um, Anthony, and Ahmad, we're we're editors for a hip hop um, series through Peter Lang, um, and so that's kind of how we came together. I worked with Anthony in the past at Syracuse University, and then I met Dan Daniel, and then I met Ahmad um, after that. And so we kind of got together to kind of talk about like what type of book we would want to put together. Um, and so there was a call. Uh, Anthony is usually the one who's doing the call. Um, Anthony Nochella, like he's connected to like everybody, like doing everything. I don't know if he sleeps. And so he, you know, he got to us and was like, you know, do you want to be, you know, one of the editors and co-authors on this book? And so we were like, yeah, we'll do that. Um, and so we kind of reached out to people who are doing this work. Um, all of us will consider ourselves hip hop heads. Um, all of us are also educators. And most of us would probably say that hip hop had a major impact on the foundational periods in our lives. And so we just never left it alone because we understood that it could be used as a tool to heal, that it can be used hopefully as a tool to liberate, but definitely it's used as a tool 
um, for the off for the people who are often voiceless. Well, I won't say that people are often voiceless. I don't think people are voiceless. The people whose voices are not necessarily listened to in society. And so we kind of got together, um, you know, to put put this book out. And you know, here it is. It I mean, it took a minute, you know, to get it out. Um, but it's here. Like the, the whole process of getting in the chapters, editing them, sending things back to the author getting, you know, all of the, the, the quotes, getting all of the, the references and all of that together, you know, to come out with this project. Um, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I'm just honored to be a part of the process. When you all were writing it, what, is, what were some things that you wanted folks to take away from as they read it? I mean, I, I wanted people to see the practice, right? Because it's, it's one thing to kind of write about it, but it's another thing to kind of see like the practical applications of the theories that we talk about. Um, and so that's what we wanted it to do. We wanted people to be able to get something out of it because I think in, in certain instances when we produce like academic texts, a lot of times they're meant for other academics, right? right? And so we can't talk about hip hop and the school of prison pipeline and not make a book or put together a book that's not accessible to the populations that we claim to be in solidarity with and, and collaborating with. And so if we were to drop this book out of our pocket on 125th Street, you know, in Harlem, where I'm from, or if we drop it on the street somewhere, you know, in New Haven, somebody, anybody should be able to pick it up and get something out of the text, right? It should be accessible um, or accessible um, for, for everyone. And so that was the piece, right? Really looking at the, the practical ways in which we can engage with um, the, the theories that we're using in the text. That's important access. because everything that you just said speaks to equity and access. And I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of time these are buzzwords that are happening that folks make they make it seem so complex of how mm -hmm. how do we do that? How do we achieve this workshops and you can go to a conference, but it simply it, it didn't change the information that was in the book or any of that. It didn't lessen it. You just made it more accessible so that anyone can read it and still get something out of it. Because reading it, it's you can get through it pretty fast. There are no, you know, it's not when I was in school or when any folks in school, anything scholar you look for, you gotta go on academic search premiere to get it. You gotta log in through the school's library. And I, you're right, as you're reading things, it's like this isn't as a student, this is this was written for folks of their peers. This wasn't mm -hmm. written. This was written for students will find it, but not with students in mind. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's one of my, my struggles with with academic writing. And if I'm if I'm honest, like academic, like I've been trained to do academic writing, but academic writing is not my first language. And so it's, it's not something that I would say is easy for me. Or like I have to get into a certain space and mindset to write academically. Um, and I don't, I don't think that we are often honest in talking about the difficulty in writing that way, specifically when that's not your normal language, right? Malcolm X, um, you know, you know, may God rest his soul, because today is the day that he was taken from us 56 yeah. years ago. He would also talk about, he, he would always talk about making it plain, like making it plain. Now, you know, I got a PhD, so I, I have an expanded vocabulary. Yes, yeah, so I could use $50 words, but Sometimes a $5 word is just as, as, as important and, and more useful in, in that space. And so the other thing that I think that masks this process is that when people read the book, they're reading the final product, product that has gone through like an unbelievable amount of edits. And so sometimes when we see these books and we see these texts, we don't see ourselves in it because we're like, I can never write something like that. 
but we have to realize that we're not looking at the first piece of writing that was submitted, right? Like we're looking at something that has gone through like, you know, multiple edits to get perfected to the point where it can be can be printed. Um, and, and the other thing that you said, like when we talk about access, like the language needs to be accessible, but also like when we write articles, only people at institutions of higher education usually can have access to those articles, right? And so we figure how many people are gonna read the research and you know the, the articles that we write. And so I think it's important specifically at, because I consider myself to be a public sociologist or an applied sociologist. And so I think that my work should be with and for communities, right? And so if the communities don't, can't even access the work, then what is the point of it? Can you give um, a little context to being a sociologist and applied sociologist? Because folks are familiar with social workers, but can you give a little insight on specifically what that looks like for you? So, so an applied sociologist, right? So we, we look at social sociological theories to understand the environment around us, right? We, we understand society. And so for me, as a researcher, I believe that if we're talking about social change, that social change should be done in a way that's informed by research. Now, some people believe that, you know, research is just for the ivory tower, that you do research and you write these scholarly pieces, and it's for the betterment of the people who are in higher education. But for those of us who are applied sociologists, we believe in research-driven social change. And so the work that we do and the research effort is not just to be published, but it's supposed to be put in action. Right. There's, there's an action base to our research. And so one of the ways that sociologists have been critiqued in the past is that they, they'll say that, and I heard someone say this at a conference, sociologists will tell you about a problem, but won't solve it. Mm. Right. We'll research it. We'll write about it and tell you about a problem, but won't solve it. And that's not how the, the, the field or the discipline of sociology was, was founded. Like sociology was founded in the streets, right? Not like hip hop, but it was in the streets. It was doing things, social research and, and, and changing society. And so that, that's the work um, that I do. Um, and so th there's this quote that I have from Lester Ward, right? And it says, the real object of science is to benefit society. A science which fails to do this, however agreeable its study is lifeless. Sociology, which of all sciences should benefit society most, is in danger of falling into the class of polite amusements or dead sciences. It's the object of this work to point out a method by which the breath of life may be breathed into its nostrils. So sociologists, mm -hmm. we're supposed to do. Our research is supposed to lead us to change. And so that's what I mean by saying that I'm an applied sociologist. I love that because a lot of times things they end up in theory. Like it all sounds yeah. great on paper. It's like this is this is the issue. There's some solutions here, but no one ever does anything with it. And from talking to you and just reading the book, a lot of this is there's practices in here as well, resources. There's a lot of talk of a collective. Like it takes a village, and you guys really get into that. This is to really fix this issue. It's not one person doing this. Is everyone agreeing? collectively mm -hmm. that this is what we're going to do socially. Mm -hmm. You briefly spoke about hip hop and being from Harlem, New York. Now let's talk about mad people are usually asked this, when and how did you fall in love with hip hop? And can you give folks who aren't necessarily familiar with hip hop, for those of us who are somewhat in the loop on hip hop was born in the Bronx. 
I'll just say mm-hmm. that, and I'll let you take us and give us the scope of it. Yeah, I mean, we, we understand hip hop as a, as, a, as a culture um, that came from Black people. Also, some of our uh, Latinx brothers who were there um, late 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 sixties, early seventies, right in the South Bronx, um, from a community of people who were disenfranchised, marginalized, and just forgotten about, right? And so the fact that they were living in some of the most decrepit spaces um, and suffering in, in some of the most poverty-stricken times, it's, 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 it's a wonder that hip-hop is what was produced out of that, right? So hip-hop comes from a place of struggle. Hip-hop also comes from a place of hope, right? And so when I think about my engagement with hip-hop, like I didn't even know it was called hip-hop because it was just what was around me. Right, like growing up in New York City, in Harlem. Um, I lived in Harlem. My grandmother, her sister, lived in the Bronx. I was always between the Bronx and Harlem. Um, and so, you know, I would, you know, be breaking and you know doing backspins and all of that stuff is is what we did. Um, but I didn't know what it was called at the time because it was just whatever. It was like regular life. Um, and so the first time that I remember, like rap in a tangible form was, um, and I still see it, it was like the the, the, the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight record. Um, my uncle had that record in his room. It was like a, a powder blue cover with a multicolored cornucopia, right? And so it was, it was Rapper's Delight. And then later on, he also had this app, the, the song by Curtis Blow, the album by Curtis Blow. He had, he was on there with a little baby fro. He had no shirt on, I think he had the, the chain on. And so that that's what I remember. Um, about about hip hop, um, and then you know later on, you know becoming an MC myself, becoming a DJ, uh, you know some of us out there like freestyling in front of the building and stuff like that. Like that, that's what I remember with, with hip hop. But the point in time when it changed for me, when I, when I say it changed my life, when it gave me a voice, was actually in 1988 when Long Live the Kane was released. Right, so I'm 12 years old. I hear Big Daddy Kane for the first time, and like my mind is just blown because of the way that he used words. And so that's the time when I really started writing. Like, like how can he make, how can I write something that's gonna make me rewind the tape? But yeah, what did he just say? And rewind the tape, yes, I said tape. Um, so yeah, so the, the real eye-opening piece for me was in, in, in 88, and also probably the year before that when Rakim dropped, but definitely 88 when one of the K drops. That gives, that also gives context of the evolution of hip hop, because when it first came out, Sugar Hill, what we know hip hop as, it really wasn't the Sugar Hill Gang. Hip hop parade, yeah. they that was a, a interesting story of when itself. I don't, I can't speak it verbatim, but she essentially saw these kids rapping and was like, "Y'all can make a song," and they said, yeah. "Yeah, let's do this." So, and then to see that transition to Big Daddy Kane and Rakim, that I feel like that's when things start changing. When it goes from poppy or just it's playable, it's mainstream, then you get the feel of it, the grittiness. That's when the reflection starts to come out of what was going on at that time. New York City in the 80s and the 90s was the height of the Reagan era. Like mm-hmm. that whole, the effects of Reagan and Nixon was clear as day in mm-hmm. New York City at the time. I'm from Newark. It was clear as day there. When you speak yeah. about being just a part of hip hop and the culture, we play a lot of house music. A lot of New Jersey club music, like we, this is what we know. This is what we feel. So we, we never saw it either. It's like, okay, we're in the embedment of hip hop. No, this was, this is, this is our release to what's happening 
and mm-hmm. this is the best way for us to express it. And I never thought of that, out of what you said, out of all that time, hip hop is what was born because several things, an array of things could have came out at that time. Oh, that absolutely. Time. It was a quote that said that people should be glad that hip hop was the result because technically it could have been revolution. Like with the stuff that people were going through during that time, like even when I see old footage of like the, the burnt out buildings and the abandoned lots that we used to be around, like I, I remember seeing it growing up, but it was the norm. So I didn't know that anything was wrong with it, if that makes sense. I didn't yeah. know anything was, it was just what we saw. So it was just a regular, you walk past the abandoned building that's burning, or you walk past the empty lot where the building has been knocked down. They got mattresses and stuff out there, you playing out there, there's glass all over the floor. But I didn't think anything was wrong with it because that was the norm, right? So when I see the footage now, I'm like, yo, that joint looks crazy. That was yeah. not normal. And so like, when you're in it, your scope is here. Mm-hmm. But folks, if you had cousins that come from outside, it's like, yo, are y'all okay up here? It's like <laughs> your cousins from the country come up and it's like, I can't, they're like, I can't be with too long. It's a lot going. This is cool. It's fast paced, but you don't really see it until it's like, wow, like there's really no mm-hmm. garbage cans. Everything looks, has like a tint of gray to it. Where are yeah. the grocery stores? Why is it? What, once you start to look out. And I feel like as you get older, if you see it in the documentary, and then sometimes it's troubling to hear the way they speak about it. They speak mm-hmm. about it as if it's like a zoo, as if it's like this foreign land. But it's like as as deteriorating as some of it was, life was in it. Yes. Joy, like joy was there. I mean, there was pain there, but there was joy that, that was there as as well. Um, even though, I mean, there were deficits. Like I, I still think I think one of the things about hip hop and one of the things that I remember growing up at that time, there was still a sense of possibility. There was still a sense of hope. Right. That, that's why I was like, you know, hip hop was born out of struggle. But hip hop also had this essence, essence of hope. Right. It also was about this radical imagination, this, this, this black radical imagination, believing that something could be better. Something had to be better. Right. That was infused in all of the culture, specifically when we think about the experiences of the descendants of African um, the, the enslaved Africans in the U.S., right? This idea of, of of hope, this idea of something has to be better, and we're not giving up. And and so hip hop comes from that that history, that legacy. Um, so it was a beautiful thing. It's like the next passing of the baton. You have your blues. You have your sp- Negro spirituals. Then you have your blues, your jazz. Then you have that. I don't know if folks necessarily call it disco era or things of that nature, but then you have hip hop. I feel like that's the baton being passed. Like there is no going back. Like, yes, this is horrible. Yes, this sucks, but there is something better than this and that it's coming for us and we have a right to it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because the, the, the other piece and I'll, and I'll shut up, but <laughs> like when, when you think about it and, and, and I guess I've just been in a lot of documentaries these past few days, you know, I watch, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah Do you- um, today. <laughs> Huh? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get, we got to talk about that. If you've seen it, we have to talk about it because I've been. Yeah. Go continue. So so, so 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 I've been in that right. So so I watched that. Then I just today I watched you know one night in Miami, and then yesterday I also watched um, the PBS documentary on the Black Church. And so when you when you think about hip hop or you think about just black people here who are now who are now here, we. We weren't supposed to be here. And I, and I was talking to my boy Otto about this the other day. Like, we're, we're not supposed to be here. 
Like we should not have survived. We shouldn't have survived the Middle Passage. We shouldn't have survived the period of enslavement, right? We shouldn't have survived everything that has happened to our people in this country, but yet we, we're still here. And with someone in the, in, in the documentary on PBS that said, they tried to kill us. They tried to do everything to take us out, but we're still, still here, right? And that's the beauty of hip hop for me. Now it's been co-opted and taken and, and, and bastardized, yes, but those of us who understand the true nature and essence of the culture understand like the amazing beauty that exists within hip hop. You had a heavy weekend. Oh, what? <laughs> you had, I had to drop some weekend. tears today, man. You and those tears. tears that fell, you probably couldn't control. That it was uh-huh. just natural. It was jarring what was on the screen. We will, yeah. we will bookmark because we will definitely yeah. have to. It's only right. But um, so the book focuses on the school to prison pipeline. And it gives insight on that. Can you break that down for folks who may not be familiar with it? All right, make it plain, like Brother Malcolm said. So, I mean, the school to prison pipeline is 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 pretty much a system that allows a certain population to be treated in a certain way that leads them on a path to prison, right? And so, when we think about it, like, how does this happen specifically in urban schools? Right. And so, like, I think about it on the continuum. So what happens to students when they're going to schools in underserved neighborhoods? They're shamed. They're seen through deficit perspective and they're silenced in that space. Right. And so why do you look like that? Why do you talk like that? Why are you wearing those types of clothes? Why do you smell like that? Right. So in this place, when we talk about schools as violent places, a lot of times people think about like a school as a violent place because there are fights and stuff going on. But when I talk about school as the violent place, because I'm talking about the, the psychological assault that happens to many of our students in these places, right? And so when you're shamed, when you're silenced, and you're seen through the lens of deficits, and as opposed to, to possibilities, right, you start to, you're labeled, right? And so you're building up this anger because you're being labeled as such, right? We understand the self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you're told that you're a dumb student or a bad student and you're treated like you're a dumb student or a bad student, you start to believe that you're a dumb student and a bad student and start to act in that way. And so when you have this anger that you have not been given the tools to know how to channel, and then you have zero tolerance policies that are in school. And when those two clash, what happens? Suspension, right? And when you're suspended, you know, I was, I was in schools and people were suspended for 10 days at a time. 10 days at a time is two weeks of school. People may or may not be getting their work when they're sent home. And so you're falling further and further behind. When you fall further and further behind, you look around your neighborhood, you look around, you know, your family members, and you see that school has not necessarily benefited anyone. And so you're pushed out of the school system. Once you're pushed out of the school system as a 16, 17 year old black or Latinx um, boy or girl, you're unemployable, and so you're more than likely going to go into the underground economy. You get arrested, and then you go to prison, right? And so this is a pipeline that we know. And the applied sociologist in me says, "Well, if we know that this is the pipeline, we know what the research says. Then what then are we doing to interrupt that pipeline, right?" And that's where I think that the practice comes in. It's, and I think folks have to understand that it's a pipeline. And it's a pipeline that makes sense and that it's intentional. It's not, oh, they built a building like this just because, no, this building was built this way because kids 
in public schools at times, kids are just numbers. It's a matter mm-hmm. of getting getting through the day. I remember I was I was in public school up until freshman year of high school, but not having to go to the public school saved my life. Because I know mm-hmm. for a fact, if I would have had to go to Irvington High, I would have been a different person because it wouldn't have been about school. It would have been about mm-hmm. surviving. Mm-hmm. My first thought wouldn't have been able to be, okay, well, I got to go to class. I no, everyone from every neighborhood is in this one high school. And everything that everyone's dealing with in their house is going to come out here because it's the only yeah. other place that you have to be. You yeah. have to be at school right now. So everything that you're dealing with at home, if you're getting beat, if it's not enough food at home, if you're the person in charge of a senior mom and so you're some days your mom's boyfriend is beating your ass or is coming in your room at night, all of this is going to manifest here. Mm-hmm. And everyone else with similar situations or things of that nature are in the same place with people who have no idea of what their day-to-day looks like. They have no mm-hmm. cultural competency of what the neighborhood is that they live in, what these students have to deal with on their way here. You are you live in, if you were in Irvington, most uh, teachers live in like Union. These are two completely different areas. That's like, teaching in New Haven and you live in Avon. You, you're you completely removed to be able to really be there for these students. Having to go through a metal detector, having to get padded down. That's, that's an assault. Like that's what I'm saying, that's violence. Like going in and the lights are not bright. That's violence. Like that's violence. Like it's, 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 it's a psychological assault where you feel that there's something wrong with you. And, right, and, and so that's why, like th- this idea, like I, I'm, I'm trying to work on this project about understanding love and research, right? And so I, I came to that through the work of Garrett Albert Duncan, right? And he talks about this idea that black males in urban schools, and I think he would extend it at this point in time to talk about black males and females in schools suffer a condition of a population that's beyond love, right? He talks about this population that exists that's beyond love. And what beyond love means is that you're in a, in a space, you're excluded from society's economy and networks of care, and thus like you're expelled from participation in social life. Like you're seen as a problem. And some research asks, you know, what does it mean or how does it feel to be seen as a problem? And so in this space, you don't save, you don't attempt to improve the life of anyone that you don't love. And I don't believe that you can teach anyone fully without love, right? And so when this population exists beyond love, they're treated in, 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 that, in that way. And, and they're treated in the sense that says that everything that's happening for them in their lives is as if it's of their own doing, right? Systems don't get analyzed. Right. They look at them through deficits um, and they they frame the language that makes it seem that these people, our people, are inherently broken. And that's problematic. Right. And so I don't think you can teach or reach students fully if you don't see them through the lens of love. And in the book, you guys talk about most students, you have to start with build a relationship with them. And I think that's where that love comes in, because if you don't, if I don't care about you, then it's, I don't, I'm here to do a job. And students will tell teachers, you're just here to get a check. You, you don't mm-hmm. care about us. So 
And mm -hmm. any population that doesn't experience love or have some sort of resources or knowing that someone cares, you are then more prone to be careless. And someone mm -hmm. who doesn't care about anything is a dangerous person because you have no attachment. You're, you're essentially down for whatever because no one's ever shown you that love. That's like babies in hospitals. They, that closeness is vital. They have mm -hmm. to feel that if you don't have any type of closeness or human interaction or warmth, without a doubt, you're going to become withdrawn. Without a doubt, you're going to develop these behaviors to protect yourself in a sense. So, mm -hmm. and, but, but I think that's why hope, like it, it's not, so it's love. And I think we can't forget about this, this sense of hope because once hope is lost, that's it. Like that, that's it, right? And then there, there are psychological studies where I can't remember who did it, but they did it with, with mice, right? And they would put a mouse in the water. And this is, it's going to sound, I'm just letting y'all know it sounds cruel, but what I'm about to say. And they would put a mouse in the water and see how long it would take for it to drown, right? Let's say you put a mouse in the water and it drowned in five minutes, right? And they put another mouse in the water. And when it got to that five minute mark where it was, it thought it was about to drown, they took it out. And rescued it. Then they put it back in the water and it lasted in the water longer than five minutes because there was a sense of hope that someone's going to come in and rescue it. Right. And so this idea of losing hope, nothing at that point, like nothing else matters at that point. But as long as hope is there, there's a belief that there can be a positive outcome. And like that's the story again of black people in, in our, in our, in our, in, our in, in this country. And I think what happens in some of these urban spaces is that the hope is ripped out of the hearts of the students who are there, right? They see despair. They don't necessarily see anything getting better. And the ways in which they're psychologically assaulted in these spaces rips hope from their hearts. And I think that's the part that's criminal that we're seeing. It is, it is. Because once, as you said, once you lose hope, it's a wrap, you then become there's no motivation to do anything. So now I think that's the neg that's how you get to that self-fulfilling prophecy. It's mm -hmm. like, why, why bother? Why even, what's the point? What's going to change? Who's, who's going to come save us? Mm -hmm. and, and then, and even like, oh my gosh, see, like even, even with like connecting with students, right? Like you, you talked about like connecting with them. Right. And we talk about that, like in the book, like to connect with students. And like, if, if you demonize hip hop culture, you erase, I believe, any possibility of connecting with the student, right? Because if, 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 if hip hop is the culture that these youth exist in and it's the language that they speak in, as an adult coming in, demonizing the culture, I've eradicated any possibility of us really connecting, right? And so I may not agree with what they listen to or, or, or the type of, you know, the songs they listen to. However, I have to respect the culture and meet them where they are. The other piece is that I think sometimes we get it twisted and assume that like for me going into schools and high schools that they assume that just because that I'm a black male that I automatically am gonna be able to connect with students. No, students in these schools have like some of the best bullshit detectors. They know yes. if you care, right? They, they know if you, if, if you care or not, right? And it's this quote that says, students don't care about what you know. They wanna know that you care. And so when I was in there, I remember working with students in this program in New Haven. They were like, how much are you getting paid to be here? And I was like, I don't get paid to be here. And he's like, Yo, you don't get paid to be here. Yo, you stupid. He's like, so why are you, why are you here? And I was like, because you matter, 
right? And those were the connections that we had. And then there was this student um, who, who one day said, like, we went to a conference and did some stuff. And he sent me a, a, a text. He was like, yo, I appreciate what you do for me. I got mad love for you. You a real nigga. And so that's, again, when I started to think about like this concept of love, right? And so they saw that someone was in there not getting paid, going in there, taking them places in there every week. It didn't matter if I was getting the check. They were important enough for me to be there. They needed to know that they were seen. They needed to know that they were heard and they needed to know that they mattered. And I think that's the type of work that the authors in this book are doing, right? Centering the voices of the people who are pushed to the side, understanding and situating youth as experts with a sophisticated ability to articulate their lived experiences and to help with finding solutions to the problems that ail their lives, right? We understand that youth have that power, but we just have to center them and put them in the space and allow them to tell us some of the things that they need in order to be successful. I think I think a lot of the time folks who come in to help students or come in, they wanna tell them, we have this plan of how we're going to do this for you, but you've never asked them what they need or any space. We, you see that in non, the nonprofit model folks come into communities. Oh, we got this plan for you. It's going to be great. We didn't ask that. And students are the best bullshit detectives. They want to know who you are. They want to know because they have several people coming in and out their lives in school, at home, whether it's police officers, anyone in their life, they've seen folks come in and out. So you are just another person until you prove otherwise. Because Absolutely. I'm not going to open up to you I'm not even going to pay you any attention if I can't feel like I don't trust you. Why am I going to waste my time? And I understanding hip hop as a culture, as you just said, is important as well, because it's not what they're listening to now is way different from what's happening before. But you got to understand the progression of it. And that's the just because it's the medium to get them through. You don't have to understand everything else. You can meet someone on that level through that culture. With and still be a part of it without necessarily being at the same time that they're in with. You understand completely. You understand exactly what this boy said to you through that text message. Yeah, that, that absolutely. Was, and absolutely. understanding what those expressions are, it's not going to always be a paragraph because that that's not where folks are coming from. But in that, he, it's like if you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If you know, you know to be. To have a young black man, I don't know, am I, I'm assuming. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he was a young black man. A young black man, be vulnerable. Send a text message to his teacher, educator at that time, expressing, like, I really appreciate what you do for me. And a lot of time, what's, folks, what's being done for them, it's not what you're teaching me. It's being seen makes a complete difference. Feeling mm -hmm. like you have an avenue to talk and someone hears you makes a difference, especially when you have no one at home coming anywhere close to that. And mm -hmm. being, and I feel like when you're a young person, if you're under 18, it's like you're stuck. You end up on the streets, you end up falling into this, they, so they said underground system, but you end up in the streets because you're in a, you're in a, a purgatory since you're not old enough where you can go and truly be free on your own. So now you're just, you're wasting time in a sense. You have time and nothing to do with it. And you don't mm -hmm. know what to do with it. And, the, um, and, and there are no opportunities for you to, to do anything, right? Until we talk about like the academic achievement gap. But what people are also starting to change the language to 
is is the opportunity gap, right? Because they're not opportunities that people are are given in their lives. And, and so for me, I got lucky, right? I, you know, when I'm growing up, like my friends, I knew drug dealers, right? I knew people who were in gangs. But the reason I got lucky is because they didn't recruit me to do the activities that they were doing. They told me that I couldn't do it, right? Because they were like, oh, you, you that smart yard nigga. You're gonna, you, you, this, this ain't for you, right? And it, it wasn't. Like, I, like I, I don't get up here and act like, I was not about that life. I had limits. I saw people getting shot and stuff. I was like, that is not for me, right? That, that, that is not for me. And they, they knew it wasn't for me. It's like, yeah, nah, you can't, you, you, know, you can't come with us, right? And so the people in those spaces who didn't necessarily have the opportunities to go and do other things, they shielded me. And, and it was never hate. Like I never experienced, oh, you going away to college, you think you're better than us. Like, nah. Like I felt like in the community that they were behind me, cheering me on. They were cheering me on, like connecting with them through Facebook, writing them letters when you know some of my brothers got locked down. And then when I got the PhD, I remember going home during one of the, 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 the reunions that we had in the housing projects in August, and it was like, yo, we did it. We. Right? Exactly. They said, we. We exactly. did it. You know what I'm saying? And so it was like, and so you realize that, okay, yo, it's not just my degree, is 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 ours, right? They protected me. And so I got lucky. A lot of because the there's so much in that. There's so much in what you just said. Because a lot of, I think it's first that I could say I got lucky, right? But I, I also saw what was around me. Every the crack epidemic took out my grandmother, my great aunt had four, five kids. Four out of her five fell victim to it. They all had kids, which are my cousins. So which then left some of my cousins in prison themselves. Some of them just like this isn't for me or getting stuck at jobs. So. When it truly is, it 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 is we, we did. I wasn't yeah. there. I'm not from your hood, but we got a PhD because you. If you reference back in the day, only one person can go. A lot of the time, the church would raise money, or the community <laughs> would together, or someone's aunt had a stash, or some granddad, or the drug dealer would be like, "Yo, take this and go," because mm-hmm. folks Because when you understand the system and the game and the the players in it. Some folks, drug dealers or whoever's in it, the pimps, whoever, a lot of times took care of the community. It's a it's a double-edged sword because they're taking from whatever, however you see it. But they're doing more than a lot of people on the outside are doing. And when mm-hmm. it's visual, you can see, like, it's sad because, yes, you were lucky, but that means someone else was unlucky. Absolutely. There was, there was someone else who it fit. They weren't, they weren't at the place where they can take themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. But that puts a lot of responsibility on folks who, who can and who do because you can't forget where you come from or where you've been at because you know who made you. Who sent, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's who, who sent you money for school books. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> when you get home, adapt. There's something in that adapt. And there's yeah. eye contact when you get here and it's held. If you ever get yeah. here and the adapt is held, there's a, a beautiful black exchange happening. Like, yo, mm-hmm. I'm with you. It's just, oh. mm-hmm. I just it's, 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 it's real because I think in, in those spaces, I think one of the dangers of, yeah, I guess dangers of like higher education, when we, when we talk about like we make it out, right? And we, 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 we 
we tend to separate people tend to separate oh you're different you're not like the others and it's like yo we grew up in the same apartments with the roaches with the mice with food stamps like we're from the same place any given point in time my life could have been switched right like one of the projects I'm working on with my cousin is this idea of, of going upstate, right? He went upstate to go to prison. I went upstate to go to college. And what happened oh. in our lives, right? Same family, right? Same, same projects, but our lives turned out differently, right? And he got into some street stuff, but he didn't let me get into it, right? And our, our life trajectories were, were, were different. And so the other thing is when we're talking about these students who are getting pushed out of the schools, and, and I know it's scary sometimes, and we, you know, we talk about the students, but the question I all, always ask is, what are we doing to provide them opportunities? Are we coaching basketball teams? Are we coaching cheerleading teams? Are we volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club? Because it's one thing to complain about what's happening with our youth, but then we, I think we have to ask ourselves then, what are we doing to change the reality for these young people? Now, we're not going to reach everyone. Like, we're not going to reach everyone. You may not be able to reach everyone. I might not be able to reach everyone. But I might be able to reach someone that you can't reach. You might be able to reach someone that I can't reach, right? And so we have to provide, like, these students with wraparound services um, and plant seeds because we, we never know what's going to sprout when they're given opportunity. Right. And what will stick? Because right now we're limited. There's a limit on resource and opportunity. So, mm -hmm. and that's what makes the difference. It, it really is. It could easily be like that. Things could be different. And then the extremes of how they could be different. That's powerful. Going upstate. Because mm -hmm. when you hear upstate, you automatically think you're going up north. Like, mm -hmm. I went to jail or whatever. But to know that you went to Syracuse. You did, am I making that up? You didn't go to Syracuse. Well, I was at Syracuse, but I went to Hartwick College first. Mm -hmm. Right, and my cousin was upstate in 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 prison, right? Both in upstate New York, we just we there for different reasons. Right, and then it's two different environments. Like a lot of the time, folks would say, when you when you finally get to prison, you're in gladiator school. Like this is it. I have my brothers right now is in the feds. Like so the and speaking to him, he had no choice. He'll tell you, I had no choice. There was nothing mm -hmm. else for me to do. I had a kid. I couldn't. School wasn't going to put formula for my niece. That just wasn't the options that were given. Mm -hmm. That were given. And now it's interesting. We're both in Connecticut now. We both came up from Newark. But we're, mm -hmm. as you just said, we're in two different places. Two and different places. That applied practice makes a difference. And wraparound is important. When you think about a circle and you really think about protecting kids, there are things that are inherently in place on purpose to stop you from getting to that. When you mm -hmm. when you have folks be like, yo, I'm I'm blessed to see 18. I'm honored to be 25, 21. As I'm getting older, the next step for my generation is our 25th birthday. Mm -hmm. And to have seen and to have heard and been a part of, everybody has not made it to this part with us. And that's no. real. No, like people people got lost along the way, right? And, and with that, 
we don't think about the trauma, right? And so in the book, I don't remember what chapter it is, like, you know, we talk about this idea of post-traumatic stress disorder. And usually when we talk about like PTSD, we're talking about it in the military con context, right? That people went away to serve, they went to war, saw some crazy stuff, came back, and now it's post, right? And so they're dealing with um, traumatic, the, the traumatic and, and, and the stressful situations post. But for those of us who grew up in these neighborhoods and even some of the, the young brothers who I work with who live in New Haven, um, it's not post for them because they're not leaving the environment. Like they come back to the environment every day, right? And when they're experiencing these traumas and so their traumas are not post, their trauma is, 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 is complex, right? And so I, was, I didn't realize I was experiencing trauma as a young kid, right? And so I started to act out in school and at that time, like my mom and my father, I don't know how they found out about uh, like a child psychologist, but they took me to a child psychologist at Harlem Hospital. It was a white man, white lab coat, still remember it. Had me like analyzing pictures, had me drawing pictures, went and talked to my my uh, my teachers, the principals, my parents. And they were like, there's nothing wrong with him. He's experiencing trauma and just doesn't have any avenue to 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 send this energy and so i got placed in martial arts right and so in lincoln west community center i practiced gojuru my sensei was sensei dave thomas shout out to sensei dave thomas random hip-hop fact my sensei dave thomas is disco dave from the legendary crash crew um in harlem one of the old <laughs> the, one of the original rap groups that came out mike and dave productions their, their record label but he gave back to the community through martial arts. And so Disco Dave, right, my sensei, trained us in, 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 in Goju-ru. And, and so that allowed me to learn how to meditate and learn me, I learned how to discipline my body. And it kept me out of the streets, right? Because I couldn't be out there because we were training. And if he caught us out there, it was gonna be a problem when we came back in into the dojo. And so again, I got lucky. Some people call it blessed, but Everyone didn't necessarily, I mean, people had the opportunity, but everyone didn't necessarily stick with it. And so I'm so grateful for 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 Disco Dave, Sensei Dave, right, to, to be there. right. And, and, and so that I'm so grateful that I found an outlet for the trauma that I was experiencing. Walking down the street and seeing someone shot or seeing the cops pull a sheet over someone when we saw that, that's not normal. That's trauma. But I was fortunate enough to have parents to have what the forethought to take me to see someone and find a place to channel that, that, that energy in a more positive way. And a lot of the brothers who I work with who are in prison, they were not given that opportunity, right? People talking about giving them a second chance. Some of these young men and women who were pushed out of schools were never given the first chance, right? Right. I got that opportunity and that's what I'm so grateful for it. And that's why I continue to do the work with people who are in urban schools and people who are in prison or returning home after serving time in prison because those are the people who protected me. Right. And there's a there's a great responsibility that comes with that. It, you know, it's it's a blessing, yes, but to be on the other side of it, there's an un, there's a duty that it's like okay, whatever is possible to prevent this from happening to someone else or to prevent someone from having to go down that route because everything else is pointing you to that. And I, I don't know how or what we can do, but I think really 
planning and working on this wraparound effect for these for our students. It has I that's all I keep seeing is this circle because we really all we have we can do is shield them from it. Because mm -hmm. once it hits you, it hits you. It's like once you've been exposed to the real world and what's happening, it's like you can't go back into it. This man just said, there's something wrong with you. You're experiencing trauma. What? The, tra that's something that's wrong. And it's continuous trauma. You can mm -hmm. go to prison, they come home, you're going back to the same block if you don't have nowhere to go. You're back in the same environment you just were. It's hell at home. It's hell in school. There's always something happening. There's no break. No. I, I can say when I came to Connecticut, folks were like, why are you going to Alberta? So I was like, Little do y'all know, this small school has done so much for me by just being small and and quiet. Quietness makes a difference. When you're from a spot where you get firecrackers, whether it's gunshots, where it's glass breaking on the ground, which is, it makes a big difference of mm -hmm. how you can relate and what your stressors are. I, you instantly become like, I could breathe. <laughs> and you ever folks speak about in Moonlight, they, they touched on it. A breeze will come through the neighborhood and it's like everything will stop. But but that shows a lot of folks, you don't, they don't have the time to breathe, take a breath. How can you breathe when everything, you have to pay attention to everything. You have to figure out at 15, okay, well, she got to work her overnight job. He got to go to school in the morning. I got to go to school there's so many factors. It's just, we have to continue this conversation. We can't. We haven't even really gotten into the book, but there's so much that. But, but everything I think we talked about is is related to it, right? And 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 I, and I think like if people you know read this book, like I like I don't think people should read it and be like, oh, dag, that's messed up, and then walk away from it. Like I think people should look at it and be like, yo, okay, there are things that we can do to kind of you know help interrupt the pipeline, right? The, the thing that you talked about, like where a student is in survival mode and, and trying to figure it out. And so when I was in the program or those of us who are in schools and teaching students, the fact that they're in the school means that we have a duty to them, right? Because they just came, they walked past people on the block who are not going to school. They got their little sisters or siblings ready for school because their their parents or parent might be working the overnight shift. They went through all of this stuff. They got dressed and showed up at the school. So many things were pulling them in the other way. They showed up at the school. So guess what? We have a duty to do all that we can for those students when they show up in our space. Because of all of the shit that they just walked by to get there, we owe them. We have a duty. Like it, there's, there's no... There's no other way to, to say it. Like we have a duty. They made it through all of that and they still show up in that school building. Because it's how, at that age, how much more resilient can you be? Like how much more prevailing can you do? Like I've done everything to get here. You gotta fuck with me. You gotta give me something else because nothing okay. else is make it worth my while. I'm here and I'm, and most students, I would say majority of students, no one inherently is just like, nah, whatever. Many can be swayed if shown the if shown a light, if shown that I'm cared about or shown that this matters, that this could make a difference, that this can mm -hmm. really change the trajectory of my life. 
Okay, yeah, we will. We have to follow up on this, and <laughs> this is gonna have to be like some sort of series or something, but with applied action to it, because we're not just to just sit up here and chop it up. That's just disrespectful. It's disrespectful mm-hmm. to the ancestors. It's disrespectful to the movement. It's not doing anyone any justice by just conversing. I think we're using this platform to inform, and I hope folks who are watching this, I hope that that duty is ignited in you to where a lot of our young cousins or young people are at home right now. When's the last time you called and just said, yo, what's up? Like, what are you doing? Just checking in and you'll find kids will keep you on the phone. They may not be saying anything, but just being on the phone with them makes a whole difference. A text message, it's okay. But if you can FaceTime, you can see their face. It makes all the difference. And right now we can't gather with them as we once did. Mm -hmm. So it's little things. If it's like, yo, just what you doing? What you mean what I'm doing? I call my son. What are you doing? I'm walking. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Well, tell me more about what's ever going on because I, you got to tell me something. Because if you're talking to me. We got to listen. Right. And they have things to talk about for sure. Because folks want to know, I don't know what my kids are doing. You don't listen to your kids. If someone, if your kids tell you they feel like they can't talk to you, it's because you do a lot of the talking and mm-hmm. a lot of the inferring of assuming of who they are, when that's mm-hmm. not the case at all. And going to school isn't just simple. Middle school is a battleground. <laughs> it's a battleground, but middle school is real as fuck. Middle school is like the trenches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah, pe- people, people, yeah. It's just, oh man, people grind me. It's a whole new world. Everyone's hitting puberty. You're 12. It's any, all bets are off, like in mm-hmm. middle school. So let's give your kids that ear, give them that space to just hear what they have to say. It, it may not make too much, it may not sound like anything substantial to you, but to them, it's like, really give me that time. Now we're coming on the end of our time together, but okay. we definitely have to make space. So how how did Judas and the Black Messiah hit you? <laughs> so <laughs> so so it hit me Judas and the Black Messiah. What one, like I knew about it, right? And, and and I was fortunate enough to to meet you know Fred Hampton Jr. and speak with him back when I was in Syracuse. So so I knew about it, right? But just seeing it on the screen um in Black History Month was like, yo, we can't, we, we can't win. Like, no matter what we do, like it's it, it's something that's trying to take us out, right? The other thing that I reflected on was his age, mm-hmm. right? his age, like taken out at 21, at 21 years old. And, and it made me reflect on, on brother Martin and brother Malcolm, both like, cause I remember at the age of 39, I was afraid that I wouldn't make it to 40. Right, because I knew that they got killed at 39, right? And so I was like, I was always fearful that I wouldn't make it to, to 40. So I, I think about the age. The other thing that it made me think about is, you know, those those shirts that, you know, some of us are printing out that say, you know, I am my ancestors. You can catch these hands acting as if our ancestors were soft. Like, are you kidding me? Are you are you freaking kidding me? Do you understand the stuff that they were going through? Tomorrow oh, you can catch these hands. Man, whatever. You ain't I throwing them. Never wear that you shirt. ain't throwing them. You ain't throwing them because on, a lot of they, come on, they, like and, and so just the 
the, the radical belief. And then the other piece is like the understanding of his rainbow coalition, right? Where he was trying to get, you know, poor white people to see you have more in common with me than you do with the elite, right? My Latinx brothers, though, y'all have more, like come with us so we can rise up against the system, right? And, and, and throughout history, that sentiment has always been taken down, right? Black Panther's the greatest threat to national security. How, Sway? How? Because they were trying to break down the system that was, that, that was put in place to keep a permanent underclass. And that's what's happening in our schools, right? When people say, I don't remember what book this was in. It may be in the book by Pedro Nogueira, where the, the argument is that, but maybe Ernest Morrell, I don't remember, but that schools aren't broken. Schools are fixed, right? When you think of this concept of fixing the game, so mm -hmm. only certain people win. Mm -hmm. right? so schools aren't broken. Schools are fixed. They're fixed to ensure the same outcome, right? That would continue to keep a permanent underclass. And so the, what COINTELPRO did to the Black Power Movement, urban schools and education in certain ways are doing the same thing to our young people, right? They're disrupting any possibility of advancement, right? So there's no difference. And so when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, some people call it the school and prison nexus because they exist. Certain schools now have holding cells in them. And so the prisons have come into the school. Like some schools have more police officers than they do counselors. And like, so all of this stuff is a setup. The school is not broken. The school is fixed. And that's what we're trying to disrupt. It, oh man, yeah. Yeah. I'm inclined to just leave it that on that. When when we get off, we can talk about it in depth, but that's it. We're we're gonna clock it there. Um this has been this has been a a wonderful conversation. This has been Definitely. one of the few shows where I haven't really had to look at my notes. I have like mad notes. This will this is the to be continued for everyone out there. This is not the end of this. Please stay tuned for the Yes, stay tuned for the applied action. Also, speaking about action, um, the Elm City Lit Fest, we are proud to be a part of the Knowledge is Power Book Drive in collaboration with the Tri State Social Action Committee of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated, working with the Delta, Delta Pi Sigma chapter of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated in collaboration with People Get Ready Books to. We're running a book drive. These books, please check out the list that we are giving these kids. The books will go to support Camorra's Cultural Corner and Manchester Head Start. Um, this is ongoing. Right now it's going until the 15th, but it won't be our last book drive. We believe strongly that it's important to continue to give resources, not just to our youth, but to everyone. Because it's up to us to self-educate ourselves and to prepare ourselves. There is no I'm out the loop. And we are rocking with people get ready books because Amazon has enough money. Lauren and Dolores are wonderful people. So in that, support your local bookstore. They have an array of books. They have a phenomenal catalog of books. They got some fly earrings. If you've been there and seen the, the accessories, the bags, the candles, the chapstick, the cards, pull up, show up. And this is People Get Ready down on Whaley Avenue. Next to the Next to the Papa John's, before the Popeyes. You all know where that's at, across from the Eblins. Show up, 
be there. We also want to thank everyone who came out to our Midnight Noir. It got real sexy and real sensual. Um, stay tuned for more things of that nature of us having events and intimate spaces and just really having more personable conversation because StreamYard and doing things live is cool. But even though we are virtual, we want to try and still keep a sense of intimacy. The book club is coming back in March. Please stay tuned for things, um, updates on our social medias about it. Um, Don, I just, I'm really grateful for spending, for you spending this Sunday evening with us and coming on and just sharing gems and wisdom that you can't buy, but they could buy the book. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, yeah, I mean, the, the book is great. And, you know, hopefully we can, like I said, if we want to do this again and kind of talk about the ways in which we can be involved and doing the work is one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to be about it and be doing it. So I think that's the important piece. Yes, that'll be our follow-up. This was part one. Please stay tuned for part two. Coming to a Facebook Live YouTube screen near you. That's this. That's it for this week of the Elm City Lit Fest podcast. Thank you, Don. Thank you to Rev Kev for always keeping us sharp and tight. And we will see you all in two weeks.